Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, building some really cutting-edge stuff, climate change, you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Trevor Best. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Alondra. This is uh, fantastic to be here. You know, really excited to, to be on, on your podcast and share our story today. Amazing. So, so born in Texas. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, you know, life has been great growing up in Texas. Uh, I was born and raised in West Texas. Uh, love it out there. You know, it is the land of like cowboys, uh, oil and gas, you know, but uh, after living in the desert for 18 years, I wanted to, to move on to find better things. Uh, moved to Lubbock, Texas. Uh, Texas Tech to get a couple degrees in business, which uh, unfortunately was not far enough out of the desert. Uh, took some time uh, to go to China, see the rest of the world, and then came back to get a job at uh, Baker Hughes in the oil and gas industry, where I worked for about eight years before uh, leaving to start Syzygy. And what 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 really pushed you? And we're going to be talking about you know what you're up to uh, nowadays, which is remarkable, but. Before getting into that, you know, just so that we get to know you a little bit more, what triggered that move to China? Because, I mean, you were a Texas guy through and through. So, I mean, what the hell happened for you to say, I'm out, I'm going to China? <laughs> you know, I, I have always had, uh, you know, a desire to like, try new things and, you know, see the world, see different like, ways of life. And uh, having been in West Texas, you know, at that point for like 21 years, it, I really just wanted to go see something completely different. Uh, I had been learning Chinese in my spare time while I was in college. And so, you know, what better place to go than uh, China where I could like continue honing my, my skills with Chinese and, and really see just a completely different way of life from what I was used to. I had absolutely amazing time. I taught English at Shuyo Dashue, which is the uh, China University of Petroleum uh, in Huangdao uh, next to Qingdao. If you've ever had Qingdao beer, I was about an hour outside of that city. And uh, yeah, just really fantastic experience. Uh, I've come back and have not used Chinese at all in about, you know, oh man, going on 13 years now. <laughs> And wow. uh, yeah, fourteen years now, and so I, you know, know a little bit, but uh, lost most of it. But yeah, you know, just a desire to to try new things and you know branch out, push my limits. So obviously, there in in Texas, you know, a lot going on around you know energy, and oil and gas. I mean, everything you name it. You know, there's just like so much going on there. Now, in your case, you know, you decided to um to join, you know, that segment. And you were at Baker Hughes for about eight years, a little over eight years before, you know, you decided that it was time, you know, for you to, to really go at it, you know, with starting your own company. So what did you learn over the course of those eight years? And what do you think, you know, needed to happen for you to really have that level of exposure to the problem, you know, really push it to say, you know what, I'm going to do something about this. 
Yeah, so there's there's a couple things. I'll talk a little bit about my experience and what I learned about you know developing new products and getting them to market. And I'll also talk a little bit about uh, you know the the desire to go you know get in the fight on climate change and what I was seeing in the market uh, at the time. And so uh, you know toward, to my experience, uh, I worked with uh, Ultra Deep Water quite a bit. I went through a project management and quality path. Uh, actually, you know, being a business major and becoming a quality engineer uh, was something quite notable. It turned out to be quite technical whenever I got into industry, getting into ultra deep water uh, equipment in the Gulf of Mexico and becoming a quality manager for the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, lots of R&D equipment going into deep water. So I got into the R&D facility and ultimately became the quality manager for their R&D process. So like, how do they invent things? You know, why does the invention, the process of inventing things and bringing them to market, like how does that break down? How do we get that more repeatable and successful? So uh, I was involved in, you know, at a high level advisory uh, kind of role involved in uh, more than 100 products being released into the market, got really into the details on a few dozen, you know, kind of the problem children, uh, and really learned like product development and how it worked and, you know, what made things successful and how that process broke down. While all this was happening, I met my co-founder, and uh, that is Dr. Suman Kadiwada. Uh, we were both really interested in what was happening around uh, you know, the energy transition. It wasn't called the energy transition then. Uh, we actually called it the green wave. We saw this like wave of green electrons coming online with solar and wind. Uh, we saw the reports from the International Panel on Climate Change saying that humanity only had like a decade or, or so to to get its act together and start to do bold things. And, you know, we really wanted to be on the front line of that fight. We were tired of feeling hopeless. And uh, what we were seeing in the oil and gas industry at that time uh, didn't make us believe that the industry was about to change. As I mentioned, no one was talking about the energy transition yet. And uh, we decided that if we weren't going to be able to change it from the inside, we wanted to go find a technology so powerful and so disruptive that we could force it to change from the outside. You know, something that could not only prevent emissions, but had economics so good that it would be undeniable. Similar to like what's happening with solar and wind, like those are scaling because the economics can work. And so find something that could disrupt the oil and gas industry while making things cleaner. And uh, yeah, that, that desire to, uh, you know, go get on the front lines to fight, to, to find hope for ourselves and others that, that this was possible really drove us to get started. So then, so then let's talk about that moment where you were so like you really saw the problem like like in such a powerful way that the only way to stop thinking about it was to take action to give you your notice because i mean we're talking about over 8 years you know being at a company i mean i mean hey where where i'm from originally in spain you know everyone stays in companies for a long time but here in the us people don't stay that long in companies so after over 8 years at the same company I'm sure it was not an easy decision to give your notice. No, it was not. There actually was a single event. And, uh, you know, I love Baker Hughes. They taught me everything I know. They're like family to me. Uh, you know, but 
in mid 2015, the oil and gas industry was not in a strong point, and they were really focusing on their their core activities, as any good business should. And uh, what happened at that time was also that the Obama administration had, you know, recently issued a methane emissions rule, and they were going to require, you know, the operators to start tracking their methane emissions at well sites. And, you know, whenever I was looking, I was like, this is it. This is the chance. You know, this is something that aligns with the capabilities of our business and also has a positive emissions impact. Like we should move right now and go after this market and begin tracking methane emissions at well sites. And in 2015, the oil and gas industry was not ready for that. And what I saw across the whole industry was a whole lot more effort was being put in to fighting that rule than to adopting it and preventing the emissions. And that was when I realized, you know, that it wasn't something, you know, that just had to do with the company where I was working. And it wasn't something, you know, that, uh, that technology could necessarily solve. It was something endemic to the energy industry as a whole. And I realized that it needed external disruption. And that was what really pushed me to be like, okay, if we aren't going to be able to change this industry from the inside, we need to go find some something that can be powerful enough to be disruptive to force it to change from the outside. So then what happened next? We started looking. Uh, my co-founder and I, we developed a framework, technology, market, and impact. Uh, we would assess things like, is the technology good? Is there a market for it? Like, can it be disruptive? Will people buy it if we make it? And then finally, impact. Like, does this you know, have a positive effect on society? Can it prevent emissions or help human health or, or something along those lines? We started reading publications, things coming out of Stanford, things coming out of Berkeley. Uh, my co-founder, Dr. Kadi Wada, uh, he was a PhD in nanomaterials from Rice University. So, of course, we were tracking publications from Rice. And in August of 2016, we found this paper on the antenna reactor photocatalyst from the Hollis and Nordlander groups at Rice University. It's very interesting. You know, uh, the science behind it was pretty compelling. And we decided to give them a call. And uh, Dr. Kadiwata called them and said, I'm a Rice alum. You know, you, you owe me five minutes. Uh, he got them interested in those five minutes. And we started to put together a diligence you know, plan and really evaluate the technology. And they showed us some data that had not been published yet. And that data we recognized as unique and potentially world-changing. So we decided to, you know, this is the thing, quit our jobs, start the company. And I know that the uh, company that you guys started then is a little bit different from the company that uh, you guys uh, you know, are running today, especially when it comes to to the to the business model, no? I mean, you 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 did a few pivots. So, so what was especially you know you raised that first stretch of money, and then you realized that it was time to pivot. But I guess before, or or perhaps you know even better, you know, to answer the question of what is the business model today, how would you say you know that it has a transition over the course of time? Yeah, so I'll I'll talk about two pivots. You know, uh, one is on the technology side. And uh, just to give people a flavor of like what it's like to you know get a, a deep tech startup up and off the ground, and I'll talk about another pivot on the business model side. So on the technology side, 
our very first idea was to embed our photocatalyst into aerogel because aerogel being optically transparent would allow you know more light penetration into the catalyst bed you know uh, we would be able to increase the amount of surface area of our catalyst exposed to light by embedding it in aerogel and uh, that was idea number one and it was just a phenomenal failure uh, you know to say it didn't work at all it did not work at all you probably could have gotten more hydrogen production out of like putting shoelaces inside of our reactor than you could have uh you know the catalyst embedded in aerogel and we found that out about two months after starting the company and we did our first technology pivot and uh our you know lead chemical engineer dr shreya shah uh found a new catalyst support and a new way to embed the catalyst into that and that worked phenomenally well and you know set the stage for a lot of future technical success so those kinds of technology pivots are things that we have to do every now and again when one pathway isn't working out. Similarly, on the business model, uh, you know, when we were getting the company off the ground in 2018, 2019, it's a very different uh, climate in terms of uh, you know, fundraising, in terms of excitement around clean tech. And uh, we were primarily focused on uh, small-scale steam reforming, where we would make small-scale steam reforming plants to make hydrogen for uh, the transportation industry. So you know, targeting hydrogen buses, hydrogen vehicles. And uh, we were not getting a lot of traction with that message in uh, late 2020. And so we pivoted, uh, you know, towards focusing more on the platform aspects, getting into, you know, zero carbon reactions or carbon negative reactions, uh, focusing on the electrification uh, aspect of our technology, our ability to electrify heavy industry and really getting away from distributed small-scale applications and focusing on large uh, central applications under a licensing business model where we license the tech to, to the big operators. And uh, that kind of pivot proved massively successful, and we got a bunch of those operators to sign up and start supporting us. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So in this case, you know, at what point, you know, especially with the business model, at what point do you realize that you guys are turning around the corner? 
it's it's hard to describe. I usually describe this uh, as a smell, you know, because it doesn't really, you know, make sense in a lot of other ways. And so uh, talking about it in terms of a smell, like sometimes things just smell good. Like when you're on the right pathway, it's a gut feeling kind of thing. Uh, in late 2020, when we decided to pivot the messaging and, and adjust the business model, model uh, you know, we were going into investor meetings. And when you hear like, no, just outright, like no other questions, like just this isn't an area of interest for us right now. When you hear that, you know, a dozen meetings back to back with investors that you think should be excited about your tech, you know that something's not working. And uh, then you have to go figure out like what it is and uh, make the adjustments. And so like from a technology standpoint, like our tech hasn't changed. We're still like commercializing a photocatalytic reactor platform. But just the way that we're talking about it and the way we're going about trying to enter the market, you know, realize that wasn't working. You make a few adjustments. And then uh, suddenly the person who three months before didn't want a follow up meeting, you, you give them the new pitch. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. They start asking a bunch of questions about like, how profitable can you be? What's your customer pipeline look like? And you realize like, oh, this this path smells pretty good. I think we're on to something. So then, so then in this case, I mean, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. So in total, how much capital have you guys raised, Trevor? And what has been, you know, that experience going from one cycle to the next? Yeah, altogether, we have raised about $110 million. Uh, the first fundraise was a million bucks back in uh, 2018. Uh, then we raised about 10 at the end of 2019. But we raised around 24 at the beginning of 2021. And we just closed 76 at the end of last year, you know, and through this, you know, the company goes through these like development stages, like very beginning, you know, when you're like just a handful of employees working, you're kind of like out of a, a very janky lab, like almost like a garage or something uh, is one stage of the company, you know, and, you know, really everyone like works together as this single cohesive unit, like, uh, you know, manager employees, you know, kind of, uh, not useful ways to think about everyone. And there's just not much structure and everyone adapts to to fill the gaps and get the work done. Uh, you know, after we raise the Series A, you start applying a lot more structure to it. Uh, you actually have a, a you know somewhat leadership team structure where you have the founders and other employees. You start to like branch off into functions. And uh, after the B24 million, you really start to put like structure in place where you have like C-suite, VPs, managers. And uh, now after the Series C, like we get to the point where we're like, you know, kind of a fully formed company. We have all the major functions, purchasing, accounting, finance, shipping, receiving, you know, uh, all the different pieces needed for the company to work. And it's all, you know, getting to the point where I don't have to be involved in the day-to-day -day anymore. And it starts to run itself. Uh, the Biggest thing I've learned through this is you have to build for where you're going and not where you're at. If you build for where you're at, you always run into problems when you try and scale up. And so if you need to be at a point in six months, you need to start building today 
And so like if you need, you know, 70 employees uh, to accomplish a goal in six months, you don't wait for six months to come to start hiring. You start hiring today so that when when you need to do the work six months from now, you can do it at a sprint. So then in that in, in, in that case, I mean, that's very interesting. So scaling a team, you know, especially. How do you go about scaling a team? I mean, is it, I mean, because you guys have been, you know, growing like crazy, the team. So I guess, how do you go about knowing who you need to get on board? Because it sounds like you need to start going after these guys and building their relationship six months or even more before you even need them. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, part of it is just having the foresight to predict what's coming in the future, you know, and uh, basically planning for success. So assuming that you're going to accomplish the goals and, you know, building the team so that like you're ready to go when you do accomplish the goals. Uh, in the beginning, so I mentioned like the different kind of stages and how the, the management of the company changes through the different stages. Uh, building the team was different before about 30 employees than it was after 30 employees. So before 30, I was heavily involved in all of our hiring. And I would look for, you know, purpose-driven people. So I found that, that, you know, when someone has a personal mission, you know, and, and that could be a lot of things. That could be, you know, fighting climate change. It could be taking care of their family, you know. But some people naturally find meaning in their lives and some people are looking for others to give it to them the ones who have who are able to do that for themselves are usually also able to adapt and overcome you know challenging situations which happen all the time in startups and so getting beyond 30 what we had to do was train our leadership on how to look for those qualities, not just the resume, not just the bullet points, like did they get a mechanical engineering degree and how many years of experience they have, but like kind of, do they have the passion? Do they have the fire? You know, in training people how to look for those qualities so that they could start growing themselves. Now I'm hardly involved in any of the hiring outside of like the C-suite because we have trained others on, on how to do that. That's been probably the most instrumental piece to, to get right. And in terms of, I mean, you've been talking about the future, um, and I know that you guys have uh, something exciting happening this summer. What's that? Yeah, so uh, we started the company in 2018. We are basically a science project, you know, coming out of a university lab, you know, have been growing and scaling over the past couple of years. And uh, this summer, uh, we will build our first commercial reactor. You know, this is a, an industrial size reactor and is the base unit for our future growth. And uh, this unit will actually be delivered to customers at the end of the year. And so we will be building and turning on the first one over summer. Uh, to go from university research to an industrial reactor in five years is uh, you know, virtually unheard of. You could say that we're moving at the speed of light. <laughs> That's amazing. And and one thing here, you know, that comes to mind, you know, when it comes to climate change and, and also like following course on, on talking about the future here, is there, is there hope for what's coming? Is there hope for, for the future? I mean, there's a lot of very pessimistic, you know, people out there, some, some that are more than others, you know, others that are optimistic, I guess. What are your thoughts since you're like, you know, seeing this, you know, right, you know, very close to the trenches? 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, pardon my optimism, but I absolutely think that there's a lot of hope for the future. And, you know, I think this one for, you know, the data we're seeing in our lab, like it gives me hope, like this technology does have the potential to be disruptive, to make, you know, clean energy like hydrogen much more affordable, uh, to, you know, take, you know, greenhouse gases like CO2 and methane and turn them back into useful chemicals in a very economical way. Uh, and, you know, having bold solutions like this coming to market gives me a lot of hope for the future. But the real reason why I am hopeful for the future uh, isn't because of Syzygy. It's actually because, you know, we get to be a part of an amazing community where I meet, you know, dozens, hundreds of other climate tech founders who are bringing incredible technologies to market. It's not just Syzygy's technology that is growing and being supported right now. Uh, you know, there is an army of clean tech starting to stand up to come confront this problem. And not only that, having been in Houston, having been in the oil and gas capital of the world for, you know, the past 12 years, uh, I have seen a shift in mentality take place in the past few years that is unlike anything I ever saw before it. And that shift in mentality is a change from people saying like greenwashing things and just trying to get, you know, clean tech to go away so they can produ keep producing oil and gas to a change of mentality where all of the operators and the big energy companies are scrambling to try and figure out what they are going to do. I see them placing bets on a lot of different technologies. And over the next decade, I see them doubling down on those bets as data starts coming back from their tests to figure out which technologies work. There's no longer a thought that this is going to go away. It's no longer viewed as a nuisance. Everyone is trying to figure out what shot they are going to call in the energy transition because it is now viewed as a given that the energy transition is going to happen. And that makes me hope for the future. And let's talk about that just a little bit more, about things that work. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? So I'm going to describe it for Syzygy, then I'm going to describe it for the greater world. Uh, so... For Syzygy, you know, that means us producing, you know, reactors similar to the way Tesla produces cars. We're, you know, we have a mass manufacturing line that rolls, you know, thousands of our reactors out the door every year to go, you know, deploy in large chemical operations. These operations, you know, make clean hydrogen. They take CO2 and turn it back into useful molecules. They create things like ammonia and ethylene. Uh, one of these plants, if you were to envision it, it looks a lot like a chemical plant does today, except no smokestacks. And so uh, able to you know, produce these molecules that planet Earth needs without putting emissions into the atmosphere. And uh, the way I like to think about it is if you're familiar with the Houston area, we have a, a, the ship channel, uh, Baytown, which has a lot of chemical refinery and refinery processes uh, along the Gulf Coast. If you were to drive through there, uh, you would see all that infrastructure, but without the smokestacks pumping emissions into the atmosphere. That's what that future looks like for me. For the world, uh, it looks uh, similar. Syzygy's technology definitely plays a part, but it's not just us. Uh, it also means the success of a lot of other technologies. You know, electrolysis, 
batteries, electric vehicles, uh, renewable energy, geothermal. I think that to truly solve the problem in front of us, uh, we need all these different solutions working together to fill different gaps. Uh, there is no silver bullet that completely solves the problem, uh, but there might be enough silver buckshot to get it done. And uh, between like Syzygy and a dozen other key technologies, I think that we can start to get this under control. So then now let's talk about the past with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine, Trevor, and I was to bring you back in time to that moment where you are wondering, you know, what to do about, you know, this problem, taking action. And you're able to go back in time and able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? If I were to give myself a single piece of advice, I would tell myself to sleep more. <laughs> uh, I have lost a lot of sleep over the past couple of years. And it's really only been in the past year or two that I have started to value my sleep more because if I'm not functioning well, nothing with the company is functioning very well. And so uh, yeah, taking care of you know, my body as we go through this is probably probably the single piece of advice I would give. Because yeah, especially when your heart is really in it, it's easy to to like keep pushing yourself and go on like four hours of sleep a night for a week in a row. But let me tell you, after years of doing it, it starts to catch up with you. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, we're ultimately like machines. If you don't take care of them over the machine, the machine is going to break down. So uh, I love that, you know, very profound, Trevor. So for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so the best way, uh, get on our website or uh, you know, follow us on LinkedIn, our website, uh, www.plasmonics.tech. Uh, you, know, you can uh, connect with me, uh, Trevor Best, on LinkedIn, uh, or you know, follow Syzygy Plasmonics on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll do my best to respond. And uh, you know, I love to you know, get involved in the community and help out. So if there's any opportunities for Syzygy to give back, you know, very happy to explore those with you. Amazing. Well, hey, Trevor, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Hey, thank you so much, Alejandro. It's been an absolute pleasure, sir. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.